Okay, we are in Matthew 26. As I said, we're going to look at verses 1 through 16. The title of the sermon is A Story of Extravagance. A Story of Extravagance. Matthew 26, 1 through 16. We'll read the entire portion of Scripture and then get into it. I am reading and preaching from the NIV this morning. Starting in Matthew 26, verse 1, it says, When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away. The Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. And while Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured out on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you'll not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask for a work in the Holy, of the Holy Spirit in our midst, that we might see Jesus and his glory and his beauty and his goodness and his work for us in the text. We would see Jesus clearly. We ask also for the help of the Holy Spirit to think rightly on the truth that is before us. We ask that it wouldn't be lost on us. We ask that we would not be numb to it. We ask that we would not excuse ourselves from it. But that we'd be radically drawn into the truth of your text. That our hearts would be shaped, transformed by the truth that is here about Jesus. Please, God. Please, God, help us to bring our lives, the way that we live, the way that we spend and are spent in line with your word and what it tells us about Jesus. And Lord, as we're praying this for ourselves, we also pray this for our nation. Lord, we ask for a spirit of revelation about Jesus, a spirit of repentance about our sin, and we ask for great healing in our nation at this time. Let it start here with us, sure, Lord. But please, God, have mercy on our country. Have mercy on us as a people. And lead us in paths of righteousness for Christ's namesake and for our good. And Lord, as I preach today, I am um, almost unusually aware of my own frailty, my sinfulness, my hypocrisy, my inability. And I would ask my brothers and sisters that by grace, For your glory, you would please anoint me to teach and preach in a way that's faithful and helpful. We ask it together. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Amen. Well, a story of extravagance. All of us have had moments of extravagance. Or all of us have done acts that were extravagant. To, the, the idea of extravagance is going above and beyond. It's like the idea of spending too much on something. It's the idea of going too far for something. And all of us have experienced that, being extravagant in the pursuit of a passion or a person or whatever it is. At some time in our life, we've all done extravagant things and acted in extravagant ways. I recently was doing so. I, um, before I was in Honolulu, I was in Montana for a couple of weeks with my father and my son and a dear friend. And we were out there on a hunting trip. Sorry if that offends you. Sorry. But, you know, we're doing what you're doing in the mountains, and one of those things is hunting, and we're there. And uh, I, I was meant to have an incredible time with my son. We went on this pack trip. We took horses back in these mountains, and we went up to 9,500, 10,000 feet, and we're back there, and we're supposed to be hunting elk. And they had, while we were there, not before, not after, while we were there, they had the worst September storm they've had in over 30 years. And it dumped snow all day, every day for five days as we're at 10,000 feet in a tent. No heater, no stove in the tent, just a canvas tent. Before we got there, it rained, water had gotten in the tent, the floor was wet. Now that the deep freeze hit, the floor was frozen, solid ice. All the walls were like an ice crystal palace. The temperature never got above 19 for five days. And there we were. It was awesome. I mean, we, we, we're not going to be deterred by a little bit of weather. Like, we're passionate about this gig. We were all day, every day, in two and a half feet of snow, trudging up mountains, down mountains, over the next ridge. Maybe they're in the next valley, to the next valley. Maybe they're in the next valley, all the way back, lost in a whiteout at 10,000 feet for several hours, hypothermia setting in, and we got nothing. And next Sunday after church, I'm leaving immediately to go again. (laughs) Because I'm passionate about this thing. So I'm willing to do extravagant things. I'm willing to spend extravagantly. Took a couple trucks to get all my gear there. The amount of money that I've spent on hunting gear. Don't tell my wife she was in first service, not second. Unbelievable. (laughs) And the amount of time and effort and hard work that goes into it. You know, we've all got passions, in the pursuit of which we are willing to act extravagantly. We've all got a story of extravagance. This is a story of extravagance. And Matthew grounds it for us in a certain way. He says in verse 1, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, and then he goes on. Now, when Matthew says that, when Jesus had finished this, And then he goes on. What Matthew is doing narratively is taking us into the next movement. He's taking us into the next part of the story. He has said this five times in the book of Matthew. There are five movements in the book of Matthew. Same sort of words. This is a cue of scene change, of theme change, of content change there in verse 1. And the theme into which we are entering, the bulk of the content of the rest of the book, is the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
We're heading into the next scene. But then he inserts, before we get to the body of that, this story of extravagance. And this story of this woman's extravagant act is meant to be grounded in the framework of God's extravagant love as acted out through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he goes on to say, after Jesus had finished saying these things, all the things he said in the previous couple chapters, he said to his disciples, you know that the Passover is two days away. And then he says, I, the son of Mary, referring to himself, will be crucified. I want you to notice what Jesus did there and what Matthew is reporting to us. Jesus grounded the crucifixion that was coming to the historical event of the Passover. You remember the Passover. We've talked about it a lot. We'll talk about it again next week. It is that time when Israel had been enslaved to Egypt for 400 years and they were crying out to God and God is finally delivering them. And he sent the plagues on Egypt to try to convince Pharaoh and the rest to let his people go. And the final plague he sent was that he would take the firstborn son of every household in Egypt. But he told Israel to slaughter an innocent lamb and to put the blood on their doorposts and that when they did and the angel of God came, it would pass over the household and the firstborn sons of Israel, but it would take the firstborn of Egypt. Jesus says the Passover is coming, the time when we as a Jewish nation celebrate, commemorate, and remember our deliverance from slavery and oppression and God bringing us by his strong arm into freedom. Jesus is telling us that the cross is going to be kind of like that. Jesus is the new Moses. The work of his cross is the new exodus where God's people are delivered from the slavery and oppression of sin and brought into the promises and freedom of God in Christ. Jesus is grounding what he's about to do in the truth of the Passover. So he says this to the disciples, cluing them in. And at the same time, there's a secret meeting happening in the palace of the high priest. Did you read that in verse 3? Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, the festival to celebrate and Passover, or there may be a riot among the people. I want you to notice that their plot is different from Jesus' plan. Their plot said, listen, we want to arrest Jesus and we want to kill him, but we don't want to do it during the Passover because the people will get in an uproar because many people think he actually is the Jewish Messiah, the deliverer. That was their plot. Jesus' plan is that his death on the cross would happen exactly during the Passover at a key moment. They were functioning according to politics. Jesus was functioning according to God's promises and prophecies. Once you notice that also their motive is different than Jesus's mission. Their motive, and this will be important for the rest of the sermon, is to protect their own authority. Their motive is to protect the status quo that they were the purveyors of. Their moment, their motive, excuse me, was self-preservation. Jesus's mission was self-sacrifice, that he would give himself for the good of others. Their authority is threatened, but Jesus is going to lay down his life according to his own authority. It's not going to be because the religious leaders had this plot. It's going to be according to God's plan and prophecy and promises. In fact, Jesus says about his authority in John, 
No one takes my life from me, speaking of the cross, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. So we have the religious authorities conspiring. We have Jesus here in his authority. He has a different mission than their motive. And he's got a different plan than their plot. I wonder who's going to win at the end of the week. So then we go from Jesus speaking openly in Jerusalem about what would happen at the Passover and his crucifixion to this secret meeting in the palace, this plot against Jesus, to this little house in Bethany. Bethany was a little village just outside Jerusalem. It was very much on the road to Jerusalem. And look what we read in verse 6. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, pause right there, we're going to break mid-sentence. Jesus was there in Bethany with his disciples, and he was in the home of Simon the leper. That just kind of like floats by us and rolls off our backs. We have to try to grasp the profundity of that. Jesus with his disciples was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper. Now, this is the only thing we know about the Simon the leper. We don't have uh, other information about him in the Gospels. We meet lots of other lepers in the Gospels, but this is the only time that we meet him. So we don't know exactly who he is or how or when he was healed. I will work according to an assumption that Jesus healed Simon the leper and that is perhaps the occasion for him to be in his home. That would be normal with the kind of stuff that Jesus did. But what would not be normal is for the disciples to be in the house of a leper. Lepers were declared in that culture and by the Old Testament to be unclean. Unclean didn't mean that you needed a bath. Unclean meant that you were now unfit to engage in the worship of God. There were lots of ways in the Old Testament that people became unclean. But lepers, tragically, and everything that they touched and that came in contact with them was declared unclean. Here they are in this home. The the book of Leviticus says, even if a leper is healed, everything in his house has to be burnt because it was unclean. And uh, certainly there were some health issues there. We'll just set aside for the moment. But there were these ceremonial religious issues. And for the disciples to be in the house of a leper, no matter what had happened to them, would be an unsettling setting to say the least. They were coming in contact with that which was unclean. They were endangering their ceremonial position before God as Jews, according to the Old Testament. It was an unsettling setting for them. I guarantee you, they had never, ever, ever been in a leper's home. But it is a glorious reminder for us who, because of our sin, were also unclean before Jesus washed us white as snow. In the Bible, leprosy is a metaphor for sin. And the way that it marks us, and the way that it mars us, and the way that it identifies us, and the way that it disfigures us, and the way that it infects those around us and creates uncleanness in our whole society and world, leprosy becomes, in the scriptures, a metaphor for sin. And it is interesting that the first miracle that Jesus performs in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, is that he healed a leper. 
leper came to him and said, Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus said, I am willing. And he touched him and he made him clean and he restored his life and his place before God and God's people. And now this last picture that we have before the cross is Jesus in a leper's home. You know what we're meant to get from that is that we were once the unacceptable, the unclean, the outcast, and the rejected from God's truth and kingdom. But Jesus has cleansed us through the cross and brought us in. And there he is in our dirty little houses. Now, I think we should also get the contrast of Jesus cleansing the lepers, and this leper in particular, with what the religious leaders would have been doing at this time. Remember, it's just before Passover, and so all the Jews are gathering, and they're doing certain things in light of that, and the religious leaders would have been engaging in ceremonies to make themselves clean in preparation to prepare before God. Uh, appear, excuse me, before God. Look what it says in some Bible verse. It was now almost time for the Jewish Passover celebration, right? Same week that we're talking about. And many people from all over the country arrived in Jerusalem several days early so they could go through the purification ceremony before Passover began. Now, humanity has made itself unclean before God because of our sin. We are defiled before God because of our sin. God is wanting to teach us into humanity through multitudinous ways, but primarily in the Old Testament through Israel. And he told Israel, look, I have a law. There's 613 commandments and you're guilty of them. Therefore, you are unclean before me. Therefore, you cannot appear now or ever or ultimately before me, God, in my holiness, unless you are made clean. And because I love you, I will provide a way for you to be made clean from your sins. And there are lots of things that God provided, but in particular, the Passover week and celebration and going up to the temple to remember what God had done in delivering them from Egypt, they would dip themselves in these baths, kind of like baptism. They were called mikvehs in Israel. They still are. They're still there. They would dip themselves in these things as a picture of the fact that they had come up to God's house, but were unclean before God and something had to happen for them to be made clean. They would dip themselves in this water and they were made in the eyes of God temporarily clean. But with the coming of Jesus has come a greater, better, more full cleansing. We are no longer longer merely cleansed temporarily through ceremony. We are cleansed ultimately and forever and completely through the blood of Jesus Christ. And all of these ceremonies and all of these efforts were mere pictures of what Jesus would do for us in the cross and the resurrection. It was a contrast between the self-work that would have been happening in the palace of the religious leaders and God's work that was happening through Jesus as evidenced by his presence in the leper's home. And Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, gives it to us in very clear language, at least in the NLT, and it says... For that old system deals only with food and drink and various cleansing ceremonies, physical regulations that were in effect only until a better system could be established. With his own blood, this is a better system. 
not the blood of goats and calves. He, Jesus, entered the most holy place once and for all time and secured our redemption forever. Under the old system, the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. So just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences. Notice this is a deeper work from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. That is why he's the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people. We'll talk about that more next week when we look at the Last Supper. So that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance God has promised them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of the sins they had committed under that first covenant. Someone say, thank you, Jesus. That is a good news of what God has done for us because of his extravagant love rather than what we try to do in and of and for ourselves in our own sort of extravagant living. And that setting, God's extravagant love and, and, and what Christ did for us is the setting of this story of extravagance where this woman comes and does this thing. Let's read about it one more time. Oh, verse seven, a woman came to Jesus with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured out on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you're always going to have with you, but you'll not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the whole world, what she has done will also be told of in memory of her. So the book of John, chapter 12, verse 3, tells us that this woman was Mary. Not Mary, the mother of Jesus, not Mary Magdalene, not many of the other Marys, any of the other Marys in the Gospels, but Mary of Bethany. This was her hometown. She was a sister of, I'll just tell you, she was a sister of Martha and of Lazarus. Jesus had had some interactions with her before. And I would suggest to you that these interactions she had had with Jesus had greatly shaped her and formed her toward this extravagant expression of worship and love. It wasn't like she was coming in out of the blue into Simon the leper's home. Just before this, the book of John tells us that chronologically, Jesus had raised her brother from the dead. Her brother Lazarus had died. He was in the grave four days by the time Jesus shows up and Jesus miraculously and wonderful raises him from the dead, says, Lazarus, come forth. And he actually literally comes walking out of the grave. They got to like take the grave clothes off of him. Mary had seen this. This Mary had seen this and witnessed this. You know what else she would have witnessed and seen and experienced? Simon the leper lived in her hometown. These were small towns. I like even more than Carpinteria small. Like we all know each other, right? This was a small town. So she would have known Simon. And if Simon was healed by Jesus, she would have known about it. She would have heard about it. She perhaps would have witnessed it and experienced it. She probably hadn't been in Simon's house in 
years because of his leprosy. And she had seen that Jesus and his love and his authority had brought about a resurrected life and a cleansed life. And this worked in her a willingness to be extravagant in responding to God's love. She was willing to be extravagant seeing the resurrected life that Jesus brought and the cleansing that Jesus brought. She was clearly, in the words of A.W. Tozer, captivated, charmed, and entranced with who Jesus was. She was thrilled and enthralled with what Jesus had done. And so in response, she pours out everything that she has. Now, this is extreme. This is like good religious extremism. It says that she had an alabaster jar full of perfume. We don't know what alabaster is. I mean, unless you looked it up, it's like some stone type crystalline thing. She had this jar of perfume. Mark tells us something very profound that Matthew omits for some reason. Mark tells us that the perfume in this jar was worth 300 denarii. That is the equivalent of one year's wages for us today. Who has perfume the value of one year's wages. No real person, maybe like Ivanka Trump. Who, who even does that? But she had this. And it actually wasn't that uncommon in culture. Often this was their dowry. Often this was a family heirloom. Like this was the most valuable thing in a family. It was passed down from daughter to daughter. Either way, for sure, for this woman in Bethany, this would have been her single most precious possession thing that she had. It was incredibly costly. One year's worth of wages. And there's Jesus reclining at the table. Sometimes Jews sat at tables for normal meals. They often reclined during celebrative times. This is the week of Passover. They're all reclining there. She comes in, she busts open the jar, and she pours every ounce of it out on the head of Jesus. This is extravagant. It wasn't abnormal to anoint, in fact, it was expected to anoint the head of a guest. In that culture, when you arrived at someone's home for dinner, they would put a little bit of oil on your head. I don't know why they did that. We're like trying to get the oil out of our hair before we go to dinner at someone's house. But that was a normal thing, just a little bit of oil. It was this picture of something, I don't even know. That was a customary expression. So it wasn't that normal that someone was coming and anointing Jesus' head. It was very abnormal. It was radically extravagant that she poured the most precious thing she had in its entirety on the head of Jesus. In fact, everyone watching said, that's extravagant. That's above and beyond. That is too costly. In fact, the disciples said, what a waste. It's a year's wages. What are you, crazy? We could have sold this money and given it to the poor. Now, it's easy to look back in hindsight with the whole story and say, gosh, the disciples, they were such idiots. They always said and thought the wrong thing. But we should be merciful to them. We will, after all, meet them one day in glory. And so we should be kind to them. We should give them the benefit of the doubt. You know, Jesus had just finished the last chapter. The last thing he had said to them was about caring for the imprisoned and the poor and those in need. And to do so to them was to do so to Jesus. So he had just, in really profound ways, impressed upon them the importance of caring for the poor. So maybe they were just like trying to put feet to their faith and like, Jesus just said the poor, she should have given it to the poor. We'll be merciful to them. Either way, they got it wrong. 
They saw this extravagance as waste. But what did Jesus say? I'll wait all day. What did Jesus say about it? He said it was beautiful. Do you guys pay attention when this is going on? Doesn't seem like it. Jesus said that it was beautiful. So we have two opposing opinions. We have this act of extravagant adoration and worship. And then we have these two opposing views. The disciples saying that was a waste. And Jesus saying that was beautiful. I wonder who's right. Now, why do we think it was beautiful in the eyes of Christ? Well, I think that it's beautiful in the eyes of God because Mary was succeeding to do what we often, she was demonstrating what we often fail to live out, and that is that Christ is above all, that Jesus is supreme, that he is the greatest treasure. I think we know that theologically. We could check it off with verses in the Bible, but we often fail to live that out or to live that way. She's actually doing it. She's actually showing what she believes through her actions. That Christ was more valuable than anything she possessed, even the most valuable thing. Christ above all, she's demonstrating that for everyone to see. Therefore, in the eyes of God, it was beautiful. God in the flesh says, this is beautiful. You're living out what I've always called humanity to, which is to exalt God above everything else. I think that Jesus declared it beautiful because it confronted the travesty of lesser things. You know, we're so caught up in lesser things. God's people have always been caught up in lesser things. That's like the whole story of Israel is that they were going after these lesser idols and God in his love for his glory and for their good was always confronting lesser things. You shall have no other God before me, he said. And when Jesus asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the greatest commandment. And so Mary here in her extravagant act is confronting the prevailing cultural feeling of following after lesser things. Therefore, it was beautiful in God's eyes. I think it was beautiful in God's eyes because it was right there in their midst enacting original intent. It was demonstrating, it was living out, it was living into what God originally intended for humanity. You know what God's original intent was? It was witness and exaltation. He created us and put us in the garden to be with him and to exalt him. It all got messy when we wanted to, at temptation, exalt ourselves. The temptation that we fell to is if we do this, we will be like God. We will somehow ascend and be greater than we are. It was a refusal to exalt God as ultimate and to begin to exalt self as ultimate. And what that rebellion against exaltation did was destroy God's intent of withness. Our self-exaltation was sin before God that broke the intimacy of that relationship. And so exaltation and witness, God's original intent, were a mess. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, beginning to 
restore original intent, the first thing that we hear about him choosing his disciples, Mark chapter 3, verse 14, is he appointed those whom he himself wanted that they might be with him. Jesus is beginning to restore original intent of withness. And that withness is meant to be coupled with, again, exaltation. That's why John the Baptist said about Jesus when people were asking questions, oh, dude, I've got a decrease. He's got an increase. And if you want to cheat and you want to go to the end of the book, if you want to go to Revelation 22 and look, you will see two profound things. You will see withness, that we are with God in unfettered, unadulterated, unencumbered intimacy, and he is exalted above everything else. And I think that's why this was beautiful in the eyes of God. Because this woman was living out original intent. She was with in a very intimate way and she was exalting Jesus in an incredibly profound way by pouring out on him everything that she had. Now, here's what we do when we hear about this concept of giving everything to God or sacrificing to a great degree before God. I think if we're going to be honest about that, we we bristle a little bit. Like if it's true, that was a year's wages. Like we get a little uncomfortable at the thought like, oh my gosh, is a preacher going to ask us to like give a year's wages at the end of this thing? Like what is that even? I I think we get uncomfortable at the thought of like great sacrifice to God. We like it when we read it in the book of Acts about the original church, you know what I mean? Like in the first couple chapters, they were selling everything that they had and like putting it into this common pot and caring for one another's needs. And we're like, that's so cool for the original church. That was awesome for the early church. We don't ever consider doing that. Once in a while, someone splinters off and they start a home church and they're all like giving each other generously and selling all their stuff. And we say that they're weird. You know what? Maybe they're right. We get really uncomfortable at this thought of giving everything or even a lot to Jesus. You know why we're uncomfortable with that thought? Because we have believed a lie. We think that if we give too greatly to God, that we will somehow lose ultimately. But the truth of the scriptures and the truth of the story is in being willing to lay everything down, she gained everything. Think about it. Compare her extravagant place of adoration to the mindset of the religious leaders. The religious leaders in the story were functioning primarily from a place of self-preservation. That's why they wanted to arrest Jesus and kill Jesus because Jesus challenged their autonomy and he challenged their authority. And so they were functioning from a place of self-preservation. And in their insistence upon self-preservation, they themselves missed everything that God had to offer them in Christ. Mary, on the other hand, in her willingness to surrender all, would gain everything that God had to offer in Christ. Think about the other guy in the story, Judas. White, right, white, White, right? We read, we read in verse 14, then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. 
Judas sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. The religious leaders were functioning from a place of self-preservation. Judas was functioning from a radical drive for self-gain. And it would cost Judas everything. He thought he was gaining something. He was coming from this place of insisting on personal gain. He thought he was gaining something, but it would cost Judas everything. We will read later in Matthew, Judas goes out and he hangs himself. This is a tragic story of humanity who insisting upon living out of self-preservation and self-gain, refusing God's intent of being with him and exalting him supremely, we ruin ourselves. The religious leaders were ruined in their self-preservation. Judas was ruined in his insistence on personal gain. The only one in the story who isn't ruined is Mary who gives everything to Jesus. Jesus had warned the guys about this in Matthew 16 when he said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you've got to give up your own way or you must deny yourself as it says in other translations. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. Pause right there. So if you act like the religious leaders, we got to function out of self-preservation. We've got to preserve our autonomy and our authority and our place. You're going to lose. If you function out of the place of Judas, I've I, I got to gain. This looks like this following Jesus thing is not going in a direction that's going to be good for me. I've got to gain somehow. You're going to lose, Jesus had already told them. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. What does it benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? And Judas lost his soul and we lose something of our souls when we function out of this place of self-preservation and an over-determination to self-gain. And I think when, when I look at this story, this is what's been impressed upon me I, I realize that in the way that I live so many times, I look more like the religious leaders and Judas than I do like Mary. Because a lot of my thoughts of like how I'll interact with people or how I'll like spend my time or whatever, it might be a lot of them are formed by self-preservation. I got to hold on to what I got at all costs and self-gain. I actually got to get more. It's not just about holding on. It's about getting more. Now, if I'm going to be honest, I look more like the religious leaders in Judas than Mary, who is willing to give everything and pour it out and worship to Jesus. When I think if we're all going to be honest, we would realize that we are all pretty radically self-oriented. It's usually the first filter through which everything goes is self. Autonomy, authority, place, position, possession. We're radically self-oriented. Now, there's lots of reasons for that. Let's be merciful with one another. A lot of that comes out of our brokenness. We all have different degrees of brokenness, whether it was some ultimate rejection, some fear of rejection, 
whatever it is, we often just function out of this place of deep brokenness that causes us to perpetuate the cycle by always coming from self-preservation and self-gain. What the story is trying to teach us is that Jesus is the one who sets us free from that deadly cycle. That only when we surrender ourselves to Jesus do we ever find ultimate healing. All of that brokenness just perpetuates itself as we break ourselves and those that we love, as we infect like the leper everyone around us through our self-preservation and our desire for self-gain. But when we surrender to Christ as supreme, as ultimate in what he says and who he is and what he's done, and we repent and we move toward him and to the witness that he desires, only then do we experience healing. So I think it's fair to ask the hard question, like in the way that you live and the way that you make decisions about how you deal with other people, about how you deal with your finances, about how you handle your sexuality, are you coming more from a place of the religious leaders in Judas or that of Mary? Now, let me dial it down again a little bit because that's, that's rather intense. We have to be honest that what Mary is doing here is extravagant, again, which means not normal, right? Above and beyond, cost too much. Jesus even alluded to that when he says again in verse 13, look, truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the whole world, what she has done will also be told of in memory of her. Jesus is acknowledging the fact like this is pretty radical, He never said that, what he said about Mary and her story going forward about about Abraham or about Moses or about David or about Solomon or about Isaiah or about Jeremiah or about Ezekiel or about John the Baptist or about Peter or about Paul or about anybody. He only ever said such a thing about this woman in response to her extravagant expression of adoration toward him. So Jesus acknowledges that this is kind of like out there. And I would argue that we all do things that are out there. We might do them in pursuit of some passion that we have, like I just got my rear end kicked in Montana. I'm going back next Sunday after church. We might, like, we, it might be that. We all have extravagant moments for our kids, I hope. We're willing to give them anything and we spoil them. We might have extravagant moments for our spouses, I hope, in pursuit of someone and certainly for ourselves. We all have this extravagant drive in us. The question is not whether or not we act extravagantly. The question is, do we ever act extravagantly for the glory of God? That's the question. Listen, God built us with extravagance in us because he desires us to worship and adore and follow and obey and exalt him in an unabandoned, unhindered, unbridled, extravagant way. He built us with the capacity to be crazy, but crazy for him, extravagant for him. And that's okay. Let's be extravagant and crazy about other things, but not above and beyond Jesus. The question we have to ask ourselves is not whether or not we are ever extravagant, but are we ever extravagant for Jesus? Jesus. 
And how would you define that then? How would you prove that to someone if they said, show me your extravagance for Jesus? And what we have to allow Scripture and the Holy Spirit to teach us is that any sacrifice that might be before us, any degree of giving, any degree of obedience is couched in the idea that Jesus alone is worth it. He's the treasure of greatest price. He's a pearl of greatest price. He himself is above and beyond anything. There is never anything that we could sacrifice that's too good for Christ and his glory. Paul the Apostle would say it succinctly in Philippians 3.8 when he would say, yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Now I know that in black and white. I know that theologically. I'm preaching that today. I need the help of the Holy Spirit to convince me of that in the way that I live. Because I look at my life and there's extravagance all over the place. But what is my God-directed, God-glorifying extravagance? And if we reserve our extravagance only for those closest to us, then we're no different than the religious leaders. And if we reserve our extravagance only for ourselves, then we are no different than Judas. And we don't read the story that way. We wouldn't read the story and say, oh yeah, we're also plotting to arrest and kill Jesus. We wouldn't read the story and say, oh yeah, we would also betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. But I also don't think we read the story and say, I am willing to give a year's wages to Christ. Now, let me dial it down one more notch because that's intense. I want you to notice what Jesus said in verse 13 again. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Do you know what that means? Jesus says there to the disciples and to us, I don't want you to think about this woman's extravagance exclusive of the truth of the gospel. Jesus frames this whole thing with the gospel. Because the invitation of God and the good news that's brought to us in Jesus is not that we should do extravagant things for God, but rather God has done something extravagant for us and becoming a man, draping himself in humanity, being laid in a snotty manger, rejected by those he came to save, beaten, mocked, scourged, nailed to the cross and left naked and ashamed and abandoned. God is the one who has acted extravagantly for our well-being. The gospel is not what can you do for God. The gospel is what God has done for us in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus wants to save us from thinking about this interaction apart from the gospel. We only talk about this story, what Mary did to Jesus in light of what Jesus has done for us. Because God has acted extravagantly in his love for us. And so we realize then that what Mary did, she did not do in an attempt to earn from God. She did as an expression of response to what God had done for her in Christ. So then, we should perhaps ask ourselves then this week as we go, and I'm finished now, what might we do this week that is an extravagant response to what God has done for us. Because I think that's actually appropriate. Like I think what Mary is showing us is, is, a, is a completely appropriate response to what God has done for us in Christ. 
that Christ died for us on the cross and has brought us forgiveness. He's wanting to restore withness and his place of exaltation and our place of submission before him. So how might we respond to that this week? And think about it like in real practical terms. What might you do this week that is an extravagant response to the love of God? Like how might you think about forgiveness this week with the people that have offended you in an extravagant way in light of the forgiveness that God has brought you in Jesus? Preaching to myself. How might you think about your finances this week in an extravagant response to God in the fact that God has redeemed us with the precious blood of Christ? That we have everything that we need in him. How might you think about your sexuality this week in an extravagant, obedient way in light of who God is and what he said? How might you think about global missions this week in light of the fact that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son? What if an extravagant response is you being trained and prepared to take the gospel to the nations? What if an extravagant response is you being willing tomorrow morning to step in the office and share the love of God with that person that you know? What an an extravagant response is being able to finally let go of that substance, that addiction, that thing. How might you act extravagantly toward God this week in exalting him because God has acted extravagantly toward you to bring you near through the forgiveness of sins? A worthy thought? Amen. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word. And we thank you also now for the help of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, you said it's the job of the Spirit to convince us of truth, convince us that Jesus is worth more than anything that we have and that no surrender or sacrifice or expression of adoration is too great. Convince us, Holy Spirit. And you are the teacher of all things. Teach us to bring our lives in line with the truth of the supremacy of Christ. Forgive us, God, for our obsession with lesser things. Forgive us, God, and heal us, God, from the places where we're living out of self-preservation and self-gain. Teach us, please, Holy Spirit, what it means to surrender to Jesus, to pick up our cross, Thrill us once again with the fact that God has come after us and that Christ went to the cross for us. Captivate, charm, and entrance us. Thrill us, overthrill us, and thrill us with your extravagant grace and love. Please help us, Lord.